Welcome to Behavior Analysis in Practice, the podcast. Behavior Analysis in Practice is a podcast committed to narrowing the research practice gap and demystifying the research process. Each episode will take a deep dive into the latest work published in the journal Behavior Analysis in Practice by interviewing each paper's author about the topic. We'll explore the nuances of the paper and ask the questions you wish you could ask after reading it. Hello and welcome back. I'm your host, Dr. Cody Morris, Assistant Professor of Behavior Analysis at Salve Regina University. And today I'm going to be speaking with Sarah Jeglum about her paper, Assessment and Treatment of Challenging Behavior maintained by a non-vocal man's function. Sarah is currently a postdoctoral fellow at Kennedy Krieger Institute in Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. She earned her BA in psychology from the University of Iowa in 2013 and a PhD in educational psychology from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 2020. She completed her doctoral internship on the Neural Behavioral Continuum track, which included inpatient and outpatient clinics, at Kennedy Krieger Institute. Since 2012, Sarah has dedicated her career to applied behavior analysis for individuals with developmental disabilities who exhibit challenging behavior across clinical, home, and school contexts. Sarah's research focuses on preference assessment technologies, understanding the development of challenging behavior, and unique applications in the assessment and treatment of challenging behavior. The paper we're going to be speaking about today is a brief practice report of a nuanced assessment that Sarah had to conduct with a client targeting possible non-vocal man's function. In addition to describing the assessment methodology, the paper also describes the treatment derived from that assessment. I know many of you are interested in idiosyncratic variables related to function, so I think you will find this paper and the conversation quite interesting and helpful. So without further ado, here is my interview with Sarah Jeglum. Hi, Sarah, and welcome to the Behavior Analysis in Practice podcast. Thank you. We're really excited to to hear from you today, to learn about your paper. And so to get things started, would you mind telling us a little bit about what your current role is and what you're up to? Sure. Um, So I'm currently a clinical postdoctoral fellow on the neurobehavioral unit in the outpatient clinics. Uh, So currently my role is primarily working with children and adolescents who exhibit some pretty significant challenging behavior. Uh, So typically that includes uh, an experimental functional analysis and then subsequent function-based treatment. Um, But largely what I'm doing on the outpatient side is working with these uh, kiddos in both outpatient and intensive outpatient uh, sort of capacities and then following them up more long-term. And so previously, you know, last year I was also an intern um, here at Kennedy Krieger um, where I was on both inpatient and outpatient rotations. Nice. And what drove you to to doing this type of work, to to wanting to work at KKI? 
Yeah, great question. So I first, uh, I first got introduced to applied behavior analysis uh, when I was at the University of Iowa. I'm working at the Center for Disabilities and Development. Um, started working full time in their day treatment program, which is a two week uh, severe behavior program. Really fell in love with the work and decided to pursue graduate school as a result. So then I went to University of Wisconsin Madison. For my graduate school, I was advised by Dr. Jenny Asmus, and then um, as a result of my work there, I continued to develop a real interest in, in challenging behavior in issues related to autism and developmental disabilities, as well as interdisciplinary work. So um, I pursued um, internship, an internship placement at a, a site that uh, really supported that and facilitated that, and that's why I ended up here at Kennedy Krieger. Nice. And you do... Sounds like clinical work, but also clearly some research. So how do those two things blend for for your current role? Yeah, so I certainly work as really as an applied researcher or a clinical researcher. So my research is focused more on these um, unique applications of assessment and treatment within challenging behavior and applied behavior analysis. Um, I'm also interested in other research topics that are more... um, you know, either we're asking specific research questions and then seeking out that data or um, kind of that conceptualization of, of research. So, um, for, for example, my dissertation and, uh, you know, one of my big interests is also in preference assessment methodologies. So um, I'm asking some questions, um, writing them down so that, you know, one day I can go forth and, and uh, and pursue those. But really, you know, like what are those mechanisms by which you know, preference and reinforcement, how do those inter interrelate? Um, you know, obviously they do interrelate, but you know, like how do we best maximize those those outcomes? Um, as well as issues related to early correlates of challenging behavior, you know, what are these early signs that we're seeing mm. and how might those trajectories be changed if we're able to identify and screen early? That's awesome. Those are really interesting subjects. And, you know, the first thing you talked about was sort of those unique applications of the assessment and treatment for problem behavior. And I'm assuming that you probably conceptualize this current paper under that sort of umbrella. And so this paper, the assessment and treatment of challenging behavior maintained by a non-vocal man's function. Could you tell us a little bit about that paper? Absolutely. Uh, So we know that there are four standard functions to problem behavior, you know, as first described by Wada et al. in 1990 or 1982, 1994. Um, And those four functions are attention, tangible, escape, and automatic. Mm. What we also see is this group of individuals for whom for whom that standard functional analysis is not necessarily able to capture, you know, this full presentation and what exactly those functional mechanisms are. Um, so one of those is this, you know, popularly termed adult compliant adult compliance with man's function to problem behavior. Um, and you know whether it's a truly independent function or or not remains to be seen in research. The case in point is that we know that the standard functional analysis procedures don't always capture everything. And there's always going to be those modifications that need to be made in order to fully understand what's going on. Um, So this paper is about one of those idiosyncratic groups um, within that adult not compliance with man's uh, category. Um, From this point out, I'll just 
really refer to it as a man's function, even though, like I said, we're, we're still working out those details from the research perspective. Gotcha. Um, and obviously there's more work uh, being done in the area currently. Uh, but really, so what this paper extends upon is previous work in this idiosyncratic function, man's function area, um, in that this was a 12-year-old male who exhibited this man's function in a non-vocal manner. So mm. usually the man's function as we conceptualize it is, you know, a vocal sort of response class. So they're asking verbally, vocally, I should say, excuse me, uh, that, you know, so for example, I want that cookie delivered to me in this manner, um, <laughs> or like, you know, dance on one, dance on one foot or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Um, uh, but for this individual, he, he amended differently. And so he requested reinforcement differently. Mm. So in that way, um, this was really a, a, an extension upon uh, previous work in this area. Um, Before we get too far into the, the specific study, which is fascinating, just to clarify for, for those who may be less familiar with the with the man's function, oh, sure. could you just like describe what that looks like? Just like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's a wonderful question. And I think it'll really be foundational to the rest of our conversation. Uh, but the man's function is really, it's about the delivery of the reinforcement. It is not necessarily about the type of reinforcement that the person is getting. Mm. So I'm, I'll give a few examples. So it's, it's not about, you know, I want a cookie because that's more of a tangible sort of function. The man's function is, I want you to give me my cookie in this particular manner. Mm. I need you to deliver it to my left hand (sighs) with your index finger on one side of the cookie and your thumb on the other and hand it to me in a very specific manner. Um, So really what the man's function is, it's about the, it's, it's about the delivery or the idiosyncrasies of the delivery that, you know, at least in my conceptualization and our conceptualization in the current paper as well. Nice. So that's sort of, that's the, what I'm understanding is that when you're working with clients, you maybe present specific requests and the adult not following that request is what ultimately produces the problem behavior. Am I understanding that correctly? Exactly. Yes. So it's, you know, again, the types of requests that they're having, you know, the content of the request is basically like unlocking the reinforcement, but it's not necessarily the reinforcement itself. It's that sort of process in between those things. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Wow. And so your study is working with a a particular client or participant within that uh, to identify assessment and treatment procedures. So could you begin walking us through what that looked like a little bit? Sure, absolutely. Um, So the participant in question, uh, his pseudonym is Mike. 
um, 12 year old male with, um, you know, a specific genetic condition, as well as disruptive behavior disorder, uh, self injurious behavior, etc. Um, and I mean, certainly that's why he was admitted to our inpatient unit um, in order to uh, be assessed and treated for his specific uh, topographies of problem behavior. Mm. Um, and what those included were emesis, so um, op- vomiting, um, as well as uh, self-injurious behavior in the form of headbanging, aggression in the form of biting others, um, and disruptive behavior. So in the form of things like, you know, throwing toys, breaking, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So what we were seeing with him, you know, he had been with us for a very long time uh, by the time we had started this evaluation. Uh, So really what we were doing was we were trying to understand, you know, what were these variables that were contributing to this, you know, the manifestation of problem behavior. Um, And through some indirect assessment, uh, so for example, interviews with parents, interviews with staff who had already been with him for a while, uh, we had, you know, we had started thinking about, you know, he seems to be engaging in problem behavior when we're denying access to these things. But, you know, like, are we looking at something that is more uh, related to these requests or mans? Um, so at that point, we started to uh, conceptualize uh, an assessment that we could further, you know, attempt to figure this out. Um, so let me back up a little bit more in terms of the non-vocal piece. So his non-vocal communication primarily consisted of sign language, um, both Um, American Sign Language, as well as his own sort of gestures that he used uh, pretty reliably, as well as one syllable vocalization. So most most commonly uh, the syllable buh. So um, he would use that in several different manners. So we started to collect more information, just general observation on, you know, when is he using these things? Are they, you know, like how idiosyncratic are we, um, are we getting here as well? What are some typical man's as well. He would ask to go for walks, he would ask to sit on the couch, which those we conceptualize as more, you know, certainly, uh, you know, common sort of man's that most people would have. Um, We also had more idiosyncratic or unique man's. So for example, um, dancing with only one particular person in a very particular way, or looking at watches in a specific visual inspection sort of manner, um, Mm. opening and closing cabinets only in a specific area, a specific number of times, Mm. um, sitting with us in a specific manner. So you you see how um, it was at first kind of challenging to say, is he actually having challenging behavior because we're not letting him do that? Um, But, you know, through our assessment, uh, we conducted, which was an ABAB reversal design for our functional assessment, uh, we determined that, yes, indeed, he does engage in problem behavior as a result of adult non-compliance with his mans. Mm. Um, and as a result of that, we uh, went forward and did a, um, a treatment that was a combination of differential reinforcement of alternative behavior, meaning that you know, functional communication that 
um, was appropriate using picture cards. And then, you know, sometimes you would have to follow caregiver's way, uh, play mm. caregiver's way. And that was uh, the differential reinforcement of other behavior. So inhibiting problem behavior for that particular period of time. And we systematically faded how much caregiver's way there was relative to Mike's way. Uh, so this was via a chain schedule um, and a signaled availability using a red green board. Nice. I love case studies like this, looking at a very unique problem, but I think one that a lot of behavior analysts have experienced. I've personally mm-hmm. worked with very similar client profiles, profiles, and I was, we were talking about this before we started the recording, but I worked mm-hmm. with a client who would make like a, it was like a must sound, and he really only had one gesture, which was essentially a karate chop. And so he would look <laughs> at you, he would say ma, and he would karate chop, and you, oh, wow. you essentially had to guess, was he asking typically for like an edible item or was he essentially asking you to leave, like right. uh, requesting yeah. a break of sorts? And so he would right. say like, ma, he would karate chop and it could be either one of those things. <laughs> and if you guessed the wrong one, it, it was going to lead to a pretty severe aggression. I would say that's a very quintessential example of, you know, what we're conceptualizing as adult noncompliance with man's function. Um, So this client had a very similar sort of presentation with that too. So uh, his one syllable, uh, common syllable was buh. Um, So he would say, if he said buh with like his hand up waving at you, clearly he's saying bye, I want you to leave. Or if he's going buh, 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 buh. Like it's go, it's more, you know, let's go there. I want to go there. Um, Uh, So it's, so that took a very long time, as you can imagine, to really start to figure out. Um, Some of them, of course, were clear. Some of them just weren't kind of similar to your karate chop client. (laughs) When you were seeing sort of these presentations, is that what led you to go uh, probably a standard functional analysis isn't going to be useful or did you try one first or how did you make that decision exactly to go into the assessment that you did? Yeah, excellent question. So uh, as I briefly mentioned, he had already been with us for quite a while. And so, yes, we had done uh, the standard functional analysis, um, if I'm remembering it correctly, a few different times kind of across his admission. Uh, we had also started to do a few other uh, sorts of, um, we, were, we were trying other things in order to really understand, you know, why these behaviors were happening. Obviously, we're talking about pretty significant, um, you know, dangerous sorts of behaviors. So a lot of this was, you know, obviously, um, you know, we're trying to find answers as efficiently as we can so that we can really, you know, support his you know, his best, you know, outcomes as well as, you know, get him back to family. Um, yeah. So we had already done quite a few evaluations up to that point before we determined, you know what, we're not really seeing this. And we were having some issues with some existing um, treatment evaluations that we were trying out. And um, because of those issues with, you know, schedule thinning, we weren't quite you know, able to have stimulus control over these situations, we decided to um, try this assessment because of these other, you know, sorts of requests and subsequent problem behavior when denied access to those requests. That contingency did not really become clear until until this time, um, which was quite a while. That, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's a really, really useful model of sorts to start with sort of broad 
standard procedures, you know, functional analyses. And as you, you utilize those, those and maybe try treatments or maybe the, the FA wasn't, wasn't conclusive, that's mm-hmm. when you begin to narrow in your scope and look more specifically yes. at some of these idiosyncratic or, or more individualized assessment yeah. procedures. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so the, the way you set up this, this assessment to identify or confirm the, the function of the behavior, I thought was really, really brilliant. So would you mind Thank sort of you. going through the, the procedures for the assessment and describing what yeah. that looked like? Absolutely. Uh, so we had a reversal design, so ABAB. And so the two conditions that we tested, um, so the control condition was really our uh, toy play sort of, or sh- I guess I'll, I'll refer to it as more as the life is good sort of condition where basically any requests that he may admit, we honored immediately. Uh, so we had done it all around the unit um, such that, you know, everything that he loved was available to him. So, you know, we were, we had the luxury of being able to, you know, go with our laptops to take data as he wanted to go to this specific room and open and close that specific door. Mm. We were able to, you know, have him sit with, you know, therapists could sit with him in his, you know, specific preferred way. Uh, So in that control condition, basically all, all mans were honored, um, you know, for, for, you know, every, for 30 seconds, but then he, whatever the next one was, we continued on with it. In the test condition, that was caregivers, you know, kind of proxied our caregivers way where we had to play, he had to play, you know, our way. Um, So with similar toys, we didn't want to make it necessarily a demand context. So that also took some planning in terms of, you know, here are the toys that are more moderately preferred, some things such as, you know, there's like a toy kitchen, um, uh, like a remote control sort of uh, toy that had many different buttons on it. Um, so, but then we would tell him, you know, touch this button or, you know, like, let's, let's do this now. Mm. Um, and any mans that he had were ignored, but if any problem behavior occurred, we honored the last man that was admitted before that prompt behavior. So the most proximal man to the problem behavior was what was reinforced as well as all other mans for approximately 30 seconds. With the demands that you were placing in, in the test condition, were those sort of set up to create the establishing operation for, for the client to, to sort of place his own mans or what was the rationale exactly. behind that? Yes, exactly. That's, the, that's exactly right. Uh, so basically we played with toys that we, you know, hypothesized would likely be something that he would want to play with differently Mm. or that he would want to do differently. So um, another example, so we would be, you know, near the couch and then he would want to, so I remember he liked to sit with us on the, he would want to be on our left side, but then what we would do is, oh, we're going to sit on your right side or we'll sit to, um, so that he's on the right side. And of course he wanted to sit differently. And so I remember this very clearly, uh, you know, times when he would, you know, we would say, okay, we're going to sit, it's test condition. We're going to sit and you're going to be on the right side. He would headbutt, and then it would, oh, okay, we'll switch it then. Um, It was just to our arm, but it was still just the clearest contingency that you can possibly get in terms of an FA. (laughs) 
And with the, we, we spoke about this again before we recorded, but the way that you set up the, the sort of compliance tasks that the adult would do being the, the man before the problem behavior, why mm-hmm. did it follow that sequence? Or why did you choose that specific man to follow? What was the rationale there? So we sequenced by having the last man admitted at, before problem behavior, because we were hypothesizing that the man problem behavior was the contingency. And that's mm-hmm. what really what we were testing was, you know, if man was, if the man was ignored and then problem behavior occurred, and then we honored that man, but then problem behavior stopped, it kind of confirms that sort of theory that this is a, you know, this presentation of the man's function. Uh, The other issue that we were running into is that sometimes it wasn't necessarily clear what he was requesting with his man. So because of the non-vocal nature of his, of his communication, uh, you know, some of it was extremely clear given his, um, you know, either the, the tone or the prosody and those sorts of things that made sense. But then other times it was, you know, not clear at all what he was asking for. And so then we would have to ask follow-up questions. Um, so what do you mean by that? Or did you want this? And then he would be very clear with either nodding his head yes or shaking his head no. Um, okay. So as a result of that, it made much more sense to sequence it the way we did such that we were able to test that true relationship between manned problem behavior. That's awesome. And when, when you were, when they, when he engaged in problem behavior and you went through the attempt to comply with that, that man, you're saying at times, if it wasn't super clear, you would ask clarifying questions and then he would sort of give you indicators as to if you're on the right track or not. Yes, exactly. Yep. And that's another reason why we wanted to give that 30 second reinforcement window um, for our assessment as well. Nice. Now the design, you said it was an, it was an ABAB reversal design and you'd already specified that you had already done like a functional analysis. So you didn't really need to compare this potential function with, with the the typical class of functions that we look at. There was no need to do like an attention condition within this because you'd already ruled that out. But why the, why the ABAB design given that you were just looking at the one sort of potential condition? Yeah. So because we were already having trouble figuring this function out, we found that it's, it was very important to still have that experimental control over our assessment. And we found the ABAB design to be most beneficial because, you know, we were able to, we were able to very specifically test out, you know, um, the man's function versus kind of that life is good condition. And, you know, this was also informed by previous work in, in this area. So, um, you know, for example, uh, Jonathan Schmidt, who was a second author on this article, he had some work in this area. Um, if I'm remembering correctly, um, that article in 2017 also had a similar um, design approach. Um, but, you know, overall, it's, um, it, it was found to be a more, um, specific way to truly test out, you know, like basically turning on and off the behavior. And because, you know, we wanted to get something done as efficiently as possible. That was, uh, really the answer that we came up with. Nice. And it seemed to show really clear distinction, uh, distinguishing 
patterns of behavior within the design. So yeah. it seems like it's really appropriate for this for the situation. Now, yeah. with the with the design and, and with the assessment, you've got it looks like a total of, of 15 sessions, you've got like six sessions within the first control mm -hmm. phase, three in the test phase, three in the next yep. control, three in the following test. When were you introducing those sessions or like how many of those sessions were you running in a row? Like when, when did those yeah. take place? Yeah, yeah, great question. So the behavior team usually um, was with the client for about three, three and a half hours per day, five days a week, so Monday through Friday. Um, so those sessions were occurring primarily um, in, in the morning, if I remember correctly. Um, but they were pretty rapid fire in terms of, you know, um, you know, we would set things up, we would run sessions for, you know, a few hours and then take a break when needed. Um, mm. so, you know, of course there's always going to be things that we need to stop for, um, ADLs, et cetera. Nice. And so what was like approximation, how long would you say this, this particular assessment took to, to implement? Um, so I think the actual assessment we did across two to three weeks, um, maybe two, maybe less than that even, um, you know, this assessment uh, occurred probably about almost a year and a half ago at this point. Um, right. So my, my memory maybe has <laughs> maybe a little bit fuzzy, but I, yeah. I want to, I think approximately, you know, like one to two weeks. And this was again, five days a week that we were able to do. Um, but it, it may have only take, you know, I think it probably took less time than that. Nice. And as, as we were talking about the, you ran the ABAB reversal design, you see clear distinction. You see that the behavior is popping during the test conditions, mm -hmm. indicating yep. that it is this man's function. And then you move into your sort of treatment analysis. And so can you talk to us about that? Yeah, so the treatment analysis, uh, we went into a BAB design for that. Um, because as, as I mentioned, you know, we had already had him with us for a very long time at this point and we wanted to uh we really wanted to you know work as efficiently as we could as well as we're working with some pretty significant types of behaviors so as a result we wanted to you know of course we wanted to make sure that we were going in the right direction by experimentally testing using the bab de design approach uh, but we really wanted to get started as soon as we could in terms of okay, let's get started with, um, with the treatment that we're thinking, and then we can start to fade and we can start to thin the schedule a little bit more. Nice. So, um, yeah. cause, cause you had identified, okay, this, this is probably the, the logical treatment for us to try. Yes. We're not going to bother collecting a prolonged baseline again, delaying yeah. that even more then trying it and then it may or may not work. And then we're kind of back to square one. So instead, right. you, am I understanding this right? And then you just jump yep. straight into treatment with this. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Especially because we had our, we had literally just completed the assessment, and, you know, maybe like after a brief supervision or maybe, you know, the very next day we got started immediately with, with this treatment evaluation. I imagine there had to have been some excitement. Given oh, absolutely. The, the assessment data were so clear that like, we oh, might have <laughs> oh my goodness. It was, it was absolutely, uh, it was an amazing feeling to <laughs> yeah. say like, oh my gosh, I think we found it. <laughs> nice. And then the, the treatment data looked good. So 
Do you want to tell us what the sort of core components of that treatment package sure, was? Sure, absolutely. So the core components were differential reinforcement of alternative behavior. And so we did some functional communication training beforehand, mm -hmm. um, before we actually got started, uh, to ensure that a uh, picture exchange, picture touch was the right uh, functional communication response to go with. And was that um, just and a so single, sorry, was that just a single response that you were you were targeting? So actually, yeah, another great question. So we had several different icons representing all of his different mm. uh, main requests that he had. Um, so some of them were toy specific, some of them were person specific. So sit with me, um, you know, dance with me. He also liked kind of like neck rubs. And so that was another one. Um, and the, as well as specific types of toys that he loved. Uh, so those were all, you know, there were probably between 10 and 12 icons on his board. Um, and he was very efficient with his, with asking for all of those. Nice. Yeah. And so that was one component, of course, was that he could actually appropriately communicate. And that was more of a generalizable communication response so that he could actually ask anyone for these things. Awesome. Um, and then with the um, other part of it, of course, was, well, let's build in some times that he has to follow the caregiver's rules. So that was what we called caregiver's way. And that was the differential reinforcement of other behavior approach. So in that condition, in that part of the session, he was required to engage, you know, withhold engagement of, of his problem behavior um, for the full duration of that caregiver's way. Mm. Um, while he wasn't necessarily required to, um, you know, actually you know, follow our demands necessarily, you know, he typically was pretty compliant with it. And it was just more of a tolerance sort of um, approach with that. Gotcha. Um, and so basically what we did was with this DRA, DRO, this was signaled via a, a red green board signaled availability, um, where green was, you know, his request would be honored and red would be, nope, his request would not be honored. And we would basically move all those icons over. And so um, the yeah. so the specific icons, those are going, those they're still technically available, but you're moving them over signaling that they're not available. Is that yep? Right? So yep. So basically if icons are on green, man's would be honored. And if those same icons were on the red side of the board, that means they would not be honored. Gotcha. Um, even if he tried to hand them when they were from the red side of the board. Gotcha. Um, and so this was via a chain schedule. So we had to complete the caregiver's way in order to unlock. Mike's way. Um, and so this was, so with the schedule thinning approach that we did, um, so basically how this worked was we first started with full 10 minute session was Mike's way. So mm. life is good. This is basically <laughs> the control condition of the assessment. All right. Uh, but then what we, you know, what we started to do was thin in times when he had to play, you know, caregiver's way um, or that he had to tolerate caregiver's way. Um, and so it first started with, you know, maybe 10 seconds and then, you know, continued on and thinned and thinned um, until we got to five minutes of caregiver's way, five minutes of Mike's way. Um, and so with that, um, basically what we were, um, what we were working towards was, you know, he had to tolerate those things, but if he engaged in problem behavior, there was a response cost associated with that where he would lose a minute of Mike's way. He mm. basically had to do another minute of caregiver's way. So that same 10 minutes, 
it basically adjusts such that there was more caregivers way if you engaged in problem behavior during that during that DRO caregivers way section that's that's yes it, exactly so DRO came first and then if he engaged in problem behavior during that we would add an extra minute from and take away a minute from Mike's way and is that it all visually depicted or shown to him or did you just tell him we we just told him um, we actually at one point tested out a visual approach with it and it ended up uh, backfiring so we <laughs> that was that was uh, down the road though um, that was not included in the paper in this uh, part of the evaluation but a simple sort of verbal instruction yep, about it yep. seems sufficient basically we said you know oh because you hit another minute of caregivers way gotcha and that was sufficient okay nice and when when you were beginning to introduce the the change schedule part of this right because as mm -hmm. you said at the beginning it's just mike's way right as long as he requests he gets mm -hmm. compliance right yes yep but then mm -hmm. you start introducing these 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 times where he can't really request for for specific things or that you at least won't comply with them and so correct is that is it just he was able to take the icons and you're essentially just putting those on extinction or what did that look like yeah great question so procedurally when we first started introducing those uh, components um, we basically had all of the icons already on the red side of the board at the beginning so because our our approach was caregivers way is the beginning of the session and then Mike's way is at the end of the session and so mm -hmm. basically how we would start the session is all the icons are already on the red side of the board um, and so we first started with 10 seconds unavailable or unavailable man. So um, we would just show him, all right, it's time to play my way. And then we also, of course, had um, our visual that um, it is caregiver's way. Um, so we had, we first started with the lanyard that had caregiver's way on one side, Mike's way on the other. Hmm. And so the caregiver's way was on, was, you know, the side for that first 10 seconds. And then we would flip it to Mike's way, then change all the icons over to green, signaling that he could request for whatever he wanted was nice. available. Nice. And you were able to fade that up to, you said the five minute, five minute split. How many, mm -hmm. looks like maybe just over 45 sessions, about how long? Again, I know it's probably a while ago, but if you had a <laughs> guess. Um, so if I had a guess, this probably took another few weeks uh, to get through. And again, we were able to work with him directly, um, you know, daily, five days a week uh, for a few hours a day. And you were running during those few hours, you're running just these sessions or was this like one program of many that? This was one program of a few that we were running with him. Yeah. So that certainly impacts time too, because, you know, obviously what we're hoping with this paper is demonstrate, you know, a way for other practitioners to go forth and, you know, assess something that they're seeing that's similar. Um, and I certainly think that it can be adapted such that, you know, you don't need the sort of control that we have at a hospital setting. Right. At least that's, that's the hope. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I like the way that you broke down the change schedule in particular, right? Like a lot of times it's given the amount of research we've seen on like functional communication training, it's a mm -hmm. pretty logical next step to go when there's problem behavior, you simply ask them to request it they can request right. it and they don't have to engage in the problem behavior. The issue is 
if mm-hmm. the problem behavior is associated with him or the client asking you to do very outlandish <laughs> sort of compliance tasks, right. it's not super reasonable for him just to be able to ask you to do that for the rest of his life and you right. to comply with that. So you've got to do some sort of training around you don't always get your way and and that's where exactly. the change schedule came in which I thought was brilliant thank you so much yeah I'm glad that glad that you enjoyed it <laughs> yeah it, it, it was it was really neat and I've seen some other procedures I've, I've seen people call it sort of boss hat where it didn't have as many I don't think uh, discriminative stimuli but like mm-hmm. the idea that you wear like a your hat and when I wear the hat I tell you I can tell you what to do when you wear the hat you can tell me what to do sure sure I've personally done it with a a, I think she was like maybe four or five year old um girl and she was really into princess stuff so we did princess tiara oh my god she got to wear a princess tiara (laughs) and then I got to wear a princess tiara so oh, that's amazing. Fun. Yeah, yeah, that was a lot of fun. But I, but nevertheless, the way that you you set up the change schedule and then you send that schedule out to, to begin to create that that sort of 50-50 favor and then hopefully set up for, you know, yep. our schedule in the future. Yep, exactly. Was yeah. awesome. Thank you. Now, in terms of where to go with this, this research line, this was obviously a case study. This is a single client or participant that you did this procedure with what do you see as the important next steps to develop this this sort of line of research out a little bit more yeah excellent question so really the next steps are going to be supporting clinicians and other you know caregivers to identify you know what what this man's function quote unquote looks like for specific individuals. So one line of research I think is continuing to distinguish and understand how to identify um, these these particular mans and whether this is something that, you know, this adult non-compliance with mans is evoking problem behavior relationship. That I think is one of the hardest things about it as well as one of the, literally the most important thing about it. Um, so, you know, for example, you know, identifying those ABC sort of contingencies, you know, like he asked for this particular thing in a particular way, I delivered it differently, he had problem behavior. That I think, you know, spe- could have that suggestion or indication that, you know, perhaps that, you know, you should consider uh, assessing for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, certainly understanding this adult non-compliance with MANS as, you know, distinct from these other types of functional classes, I think is really important in understanding what are those mechanisms. So um, what's the difference between, you know, the presentation or the delivery of the reinforcement versus, you know, are there other manifestations of this function that, you know, it looks different, you know, qualitatively or, you know, how to, how to really understand those more. Um, so that's one line of research as a result, um, especially as they pertain to non-vocal individuals, which are, you know, of course, you know, relatively common in, in our line of work. Mm. Um, another, another line of work is really this more generalization and, you know, how do we help other in how, how do we help other clinicians, um, really work towards assessing and successfully treating Mm. in other 
types of areas. So, um, you know, a hospital setting, we're able to control for all of these things. You know, in a school setting, you can't control for many of those things at all. Um, you know, if there's other, you know, post-COVID, you know, other children around, other, you know, siblings, and, you know, there's the recess and park and all that sort of thing. There's so many things and different, you know, activities and materials in the classroom. There's so many things that, you know, we're able to control for, but not many other people can in other, in other settings. So I certainly think that, um, you know, more naturalistic sorts of settings in terms of assessment and treatment are, is going to be another huge direction. Do you see, and this is a lofty question and, and <laughs> maybe there's not enough data to actually answer this, but do you see in the future when people are, are working with clients who maybe have a similar client profile, they mm -hmm. may suspect that there is a, a man's function. Do you see this as something that people would include in like a, a just a typical standard FA where they're now mm -hmm. adding a condition and this is embedded within our standard procedures? Or do you see it as being standard FAs didn't really produce meaningful data or useful data in terms of treatment? And therefore, because I suspected this, maybe through the typical FA or some of the other assessments leading up to the FA, now I do a similar design that you did in the study? Like, do you have any thoughts yeah, on that? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So I think my, my first thought is that that's dependent on the resources that the mm. clinician has available to them. So if you, if you have the, the luxury of being able to kind of case conceptualize more so at the beginning, so, you know, you've done a very extensive uh, descriptive assessment, either with the caregivers, with teachers, you know, you're able to understand those contingencies pretty, you know, pretty extensively indirectly beforehand. Um, certainly, I think, you know, if you if you have the thought that this is perhaps something that you should test for, you know, including in the standard, as it, you know, as you're able, I think, you know, would, would make a lot of sense. Um, it also is, of course, dependent on, you know, how much time do you have with the, with the client and, you know, will you have the time to run a standard functional analysis mm. with all of these different conditions? Um, so not, um, you know, some clinics have that, you know, time that they're able to dedicate to it and others, you know, we're doing more of a brief FA approach. Right. Um, so I think that's certainly another direction that I would love to see this work go in is, can we fully understand this presentation via, you know, other types of functional analysis approaches like um, a brief FA, trial-based FA, latency FA? Mm -hmm. um, what does that look like? Because I think that does also have implications for things like um, sequencing effects in terms of, you know, when you're, um, you know, when you're, um, reinforcing problem behavior or reinforcing that man or not. Do, or do you see anyone within this topic doing any research that's related right now, or do you have any projects related to this right now? Uh, so I, I'm not working um, on a man's case currently, but I would love to, I would love to continue this work um, when I'm able to, or when it's clinically relevant, of course. Um, and of course, there are several, you know, papers that have since come out, um, you know, related to this man's function. So, um, for example, Owen et al. in 2020 did a more, um, you know, review of 16 cases with this man's function. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, 
was able to demonstrate some pretty good effects in terms of treatment with the approaches that they did. Um, I know there was a recent literature review that came out. Um, and then, you know, certainly, you know, continuing to um, evaluate in terms of, you know, like when this function comes up, you know, what are the treatment approaches? Because, you know, there are things like what we did in this chain sort of approach and, um, I believe, so Torres Viso et al. in 2018, I believe also did a chain schedule, uh, but then others such, such as Julia O'Connor in 2003 did more of like a levels approach with it. So like, you know, at this level, if you don't engage in problem behavior, you're like, you know, at level three mm -hmm. and level two, level one, you know, that sort of levels approach. Um, but, you know, there's so many different ways that we could go about treating it. Um, but I think being able to do so in a naturalistic setting will be, you know, certainly a direction to go in. Nice. Well, and I think that it's an exciting time for this particular area of research, just hearing the papers you describe, reading your paper. I'm very excited because certainly as a clinician and as a supervisor, I've experienced very eerily similar cases. Right. Yeah. That are difficult to problem solve. And, and the Absolutely. more research we have, and as you're saying, the more, treatment options we have because the, the treatment you described, I think that's excellent. And, and, you know, I'm excited to try it when I have a client Great. profile that, that would be appropriate for, but you know, there are idiosyncratic sort of variables that may make one particular treatment more or less effective given the situation. And so to right, have right. multiple options to be able to assess and try is exciting. And I yeah, think absolutely. The, it's a great time to be a behavior analyst and to, and to see how focused we are becoming on these, these unique or idiosyncratic sort of presentations of problem behavior and the really diving into the unique function. So yeah, absolutely. Really, yeah, really cool I, yeah. work. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. And I'm, Similarly excited. And I think too, because this, you know, you're saying these, this is eerily similar to other cases. And I absolutely agree. It's, you know, for a lot of kids that we see who have more of these restricted interests and, you know, very specific idiosyncratic um, ways that they are, you know, rigidity in their approaches, you know, I think that this is likely more common than we think. Mm -hmm. um, so being able to understand that and, you know, how do we how do we, you know, best assess for that and understand, you know, how do we come up with the very best operational definitions for these particular mans for this particular client, um, I think is going to be immensely helpful. Absolutely. And, and as you're saying, with the rigidity being one of the primary symptoms of, of autism and right, given the, right. the amount of work our field does with autism, needing to understand these very particular behaviors and presentations of them are, are very important, I think. And I've recently been doing some, some research on like um, ritualistic behaviors or disrupting mm. ritualistic behaviors, which yeah. I think has a lot of overlap oh, and a lot of, a lot of similar research. And so you might have a client who's not necessarily pre presenting mans for certain behaviors, but are trying to do certain routines that if they get interrupted, you see problem behavior. And a lot of what you described in this paper really matches on, maps on very well to the research being done in that area. Absolutely. And vice versa. Absolutely. It would be really interesting to do uh, if there was ever a 
case that combined those things or, you know, like a, a study that, you know, um, was able to see what those similarities are between, I think that would be really cool too. And likely very, you know, beneficial for others to know in the field. Absolutely. Are, are there any other things that you think people should check out? Any articles that we haven't already covered or, or anything if people are interested in this, this area that they should consider? Um, yeah, so I would say, you know, certainly looking at, you know, the re most recent works that have come out, um, such as the Owen et al. paper, um, I found immensely helpful for what I did um, here, as well as um, Jonathan Schmidt et al.'s article in 2017, you know, certainly also helpful. Um, and then certainly the, the original um, article, of course, Lynn Bowman et al. in 1997, um, I think would really, I, I find that those original works are, you know, as, as important as any recent work in terms of understanding foundationally, you know, this is the approach and, you know, how do we, how do we get here or where we are now? Um, I find those to be helpful personally in my yeah. reading. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your work and, and thanks for coming on to, to share it. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. All right, before you go too far, remember to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. Find us and follow us on social media to suggest fat papers that we should review and give us some questions that we could ask the authors of the papers you're interested in. Finally, I'd like to thank a few people for help creating this podcast. Thank you to Stephanie Peterson, the editor of the journal Behavior Analysis and Practice. Thank you to ABAI, who publishes Behavior Analysis and Practice and supports this podcast. Thank you to my assistant producer, Elizabeth Narvaez, and my production assistants, Jesse Perrin, Sarah Aguiar, and Beyonce Ferrucci. As always, thank you to Jim Carr and his band, New Latitude, for letting us sample their song, Cruising Altitude, throughout this podcast.